Well, it's good to be with you. Uh, Earlier in the Gospel of Mark, we need to kind of go back a little bit. Uh, We've had Easter, we've had a couple of messages, and now we've got to go back in time a little bit to frame ourselves for where we are in the Gospel of Mark. Um, These are the words and works of Jesus Christ that were recorded by our Gospel writer, Mark. In chapter 1033, he told the disciples he would be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, that they would then turn him over to the Gentiles, where he would be uh, delivered, is the word, over to them. He'd be mocked and scourged and uh, ultimately killed, and then he would be raised three days later from the grave. On the heels of this incredible announcement to them, James and John, the son of Zebedee, are walking along, and they say, hey, uh, Jesus, will you give us anything we want? Paraphrase. Will you give us something we're going to ask of you? And they ask for power and position. They ask for rank. The uh, ten become indignant. It's a very interesting word, both in English and your New Testament. They become indignant against the other two. And my suspicion, it's just a guess, is they were mad that they didn't ask also. And so these two guys have made an end run. Will you make us important in your kingdom? Now think about this. He's just told them he's going to be delivered to the Gentiles, mocked, spit upon, scourged, killed. Will you make us great? And they become indignant. And then we've we got to stop and ask the question, what do you and I ask of Jesus? And as we look at this passage today, I want you to keep that in the back of your mind. What do you ask of him? Why do you ask it? As the story unfolds, we then got to the key passage in the book in Mark chapter 10, beginning technically at verse 42, calling them to himself. Jesus said to them, you know that those who are recognized as rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not this way among you. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. Whoever wishes to become first shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Don't miss the contextual flow. He's told them he's going to be delivered and mocked and spit upon and scourged and killed. We want to be great. Will you make us great? And then he talks about leadership. Don't miss the flow. You want to be great? Get in the end of the line. You want to be first? He doesn't say be last. He says be the servant of all. You want to be important? Die to self. You you believe in self-promotion and getting ahead? Get in the way back of the line and take care of other people. Jesus is turning leadership on its head. Don't do it the way the Gentiles did it. Don't lord it over people allotted to your charge. He's not saying that that's not an appropriate worldview of things that we have leaders he's saying if you're going to lead the way i want you to lead you're going to serve people and you're going to serve me first and foremost selfish ambition and self-promotion have no place in the christian life christ came to ransom those on spiritual death row And unfortunately, because we live in a culture of entitlement and our personal rights have become our little idols and little G-gods, we we look at life all about us. Self-promotion, position, title, money, raises, what I deserve, uh, I'm worth this, what I earn. And hear me carefully, I love entrepreneurial ideology, 
But the challenge becomes when it's all about me and not the people with whom I'm serving or ministering to. That's a very subtle thing happening in our culture. And we have to constantly recalibrate and ask ourselves, am I willing to put others and to put the Lord first and foremost? Folded into these words is the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. Just as a little sidebar, you'll often hear me say, he died in our place on our behalf instead of us. And I say that over and over and over to remind me as well as you, in our place on our behalf instead of us. That to understand what Christ accomplishes when he died in your place on your behalf instead of you is critical to beginning your Christian life. You couldn't even pay for your own sins. I can't even pay for my own sins. Nothing I can do could get his attention. I couldn't do enough good works to compensate for my sinful life. So he dies in my place instead of me dying, which, by the way, would have been ineffectual. If I would have died, it wouldn't accomplish a thing. He dies instead of me. Because my life isn't worth anything apart from him in my place, on my behalf, instead of me. He does it for you as well. So folded in this compressed thing we're looking at right now, just keep that kind of in, in, your, in your left brain. Uh, that's the doctrine being taught here. Substitutionary atonement, apart from which we have no help. We're on spiritual death row. We're waiting for the needle. We're waiting to be strapped down. We got nobody. There's no governor who can stay the execution. And Christ intercedes in your life, in your place, on your behalf instead of you. Well, in this passage, we have the last journey into, into Jerusalem. We have the last plea from a person who wants healing. And we have the last healing miracle. So we're going to look at three lasts. The last journey into Jerusalem, where he's going to go for Passover and ultimately his crucifixion. The last person who's going to ask him for a healing miracle. And then the last healing miracle, other, besides, of course, the resurrection. So let's look at this again. Mark 10, verse 46, the last journey. Let me reread what Luke read so eloquently. Then they came to Jerusalem, Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with the disciples and a large crowd, a blind beggar, Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus was sitting by the road. Briefly, Mark notes the trip, the disciples, and this blind beggar. Remember, Mark is a concise gospel. It's compact. He moves quickly. And in that movement, we can miss some of the great nuances and details. So let's take a quick look at this. It's about a 15-mile walk from the northern part of the Sea of Galilee, the northern lake district. Uh, they would go then to Jericho and then over to Jerusalem. This was, uh, Jericho was the oldest city, we would say, in the world at the time Jesus was on the planet. Uh, even today, if you go to Israel, it, and the excavations in Jericho are the oldest and, and we might say deepest we have found. Um, you don't, you, we don't go to Jericho anymore. It's too complex to get in and out of the city. But um, this is very popular that rabbis would travel with an entourage. We've talked before about going up to Jerusalem to worship. It was the celebration. This is Thanksgiving and Christmas folded together for the Jew. They're excited. Now, yes, the journey might be arduous. It might be long and difficult, but they couldn't wait to go to the big city. Let's think about it that way. But more important than food and festival and the Passover was the sacrifice they were going to offer. They looked forward to this. The Jew didn't reluctantly do this. The pious Jew, they couldn't wait to do these celebrations. And so this entourage would go with them. It was not uncommon for a clan to go together. Don't think of just two pilgrims walking along the road. If you're in a village, if you lived in, in, um, in Bet Shan, for example, you might go with 50 or 100 people. You might go with your rabbi. It was very popular. Notice what Mark 
says, and we miss it, his disciples and a large crowd. It's not saying there was a large crowd. He's going with it. He's traveling with a large crowd. So I'm going to suggest there's 50, maybe north of 100 people going with Jesus as they're trekking from Jericho then on to Jerusalem. Vincent Taylor writes, The passage through the city bears the character of an ovation. So Jesus was a celebrity. This is an entourage. In fact, he's more popular than any current rabbi, which is ticking off the scribes and Pharisees. This is the guy everybody wants to see. And that's the one they're following in. Bartimaeus, which the, Mark translates it for us, Bar, son of Timaeus, is sitting by the road. Now, we've talked about the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, Luke. Right? We have these three, Matthew, Mark, Luke. They're similar synoptics. John's the outlier. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record this miracle. Matthew, Mark, and Luke have some differences in the record. Only in Mark's gospel do we have the name Bartimaeus. Now, the synoptics in Luke, for example, he's approaching Jericho. In Mark, he's leaving Jericho. And in Matthew, there are two blind men. Now, liberal scholars, those who don't believe the Bible is without error, those who challenge the Bible, see this and they go, see, the Bible's wrong. It's wrong because one says leaving, one says arriving, one says two men, one names them, and so the Bible's obviously wrong, and then they, they will eliminate the whole miracle section because they go, well, the record's wrong. Unfortunately, liberal scholars, because that's their predisposition, all of those are very easily answered. Just because Matthew records two doesn't mean there was one principal individual that was doing the talking. Secondly, when you're leaving or arriving, it's a matter of geography. In ancient Jericho today, there is known as the ancient city, the Tel city, and then there's modern Jericho, which is a giant area of population, and they're about a mile apart. They aren't differentiated from old and new Jericho, but when you go there, you go, oh, that's the old ruin of Jericho, and there's Jericho today. It was the same in Christ's time. If you go to, have you been to downtown Brentwood? Technical down, it's the most anticlimactic thing you'll ever see. Downtown Brentwood. It's, it's, you know, there's other areas that are a lot more, that should be the downtown area. Well, downtown Brentwood, because it would the planning. So how many people, we're going to go hang out at downtown Brentwood tonight. Nobody ever says that. Because nothing's open in downtown Brentwood. There's nothing to go to. There's a post office and a bad intersection. You know, nothing there. So you go elsewhere. We talk about Franklin. What, what's Franklin. Is Franklin the old charming Franklin, or are we in Franklin here? Sure. So antiquity was no different. And the cities developed, it's still called Jericho. So whether he's leaving the ancient Jericho, arriving in the new Jericho, or vice versa, doesn't matter. Again, for you BSF and precept folks, that may help you, and you totally understand that. Now, again, the large crowds consistent with the pilgrimage of going to Passover, and we've got Timaeus sitting by the road. So the setting, the trip, the disciples, the blind man were all set up for the account. The last plea in verse 47. When he heard it was Jesus and Nazarene, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many were sternly telling him to be quiet. But he kept crying out all the more, saying, son of David, have mercy on me. Well, blind Bartimaeus is begging. There's a commotion going on. Now, 
again, don't miss the obvious, he can't see anything, but he's hearing all this commotion, and no doubt they're talking about, Jesus is coming, Jesus is coming. And if you've got an entourage, and as Vincent Taylor said, you've got an ovation coming into the city, this is the celeb de jour. They're all paying attention, they want to get close to him. And so Bartimaeus has overheard the crowd. Nazarene is a degrading term, generally speaking, but he calls him, Bartimaeus says, Jesus, son of David. And if you look at your Bible carefully, he kept crying out all the more so we could see him saying, son of David, have mercy on me, son of David, have mercy. He didn't just say it twice, he says it over and over again. He's, he's begging, Jesus, son of David, will you have mercy on me? And again, each of the synoptics uses the exact phrase and their repetition. Now, what's this title, Son of David? And we need to go back a little bit to 2 Samuel chapter 8 in your Bible. 2 Samuel chapter 7. Excuse me, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 8. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 8. 1 Kings, Chronicles, 1 Samuel, Samuel 7, chapter 8. I want to read a few of these verses. Again, for you Bible students, you might want to jot down verses 8 to 16 to look at in your devotional time. This is a rich text, and it's very important to understand this title, Son of David. Why does Jesus call himself the Son of Man? Why does he call him the Son of David? What are the self-references to Jesus? And this one is key in the Gospel of Mark. 2 Samuel chapter 7. Why is Bartimaeus calling him Son of David? By the way, this is the only time a person calls Jesus son of David in Mark's gospel. That means pay attention. It's the only time. Let's look at why. 2 Samuel 7, now therefore, verse 8, Thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, God talking to Samuel, who's going to convey the message to David. I took you from the pasture from following sheep to be a ruler over my people Israel. David was a teenager. Understand, in antiquity and today, shepherding was a child's job. You didn't send out grown adults to shepherd flocks. Now, grown adults would, would herd large land and large farms, and they would have large flocks. But the actual tending of a flock was left to children. So you've got David as a shepherd boy. Did you notice what God says? I took you from what? Following sheep. Not shepherding. Not leading, I took you from following sheep. Not to be too graphic at uh, almost 10 in the morning. What are you walking in if you're following sheep? This isn't meant to be missed. I took you from following sheep as a boy and made you ruler over my people, Israel. What an image. I took you from walking in the muck of a bunch of stinky animals and I put you over my people, you were shepherding sheep. No, you were following sheep. And I put you over my sheep. And then the prophecy continues. I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you. I will make you a great name, like the names of great men who were on the earth. I will also appoint a place for my people, Israel, and will plant them that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again, nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly, even from the day I commanded judges to rule over my people Israel. I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. Remember, David wants to build a temple complex. He says, no, but you can build a house, and your son's going to come along later and build the temple. This is all the Davidic covenant. 
Verse 12. When your days are complete, when you lie down with your fathers, an idiom for death, I will raise up. Don't miss the metaphor. When you're laid down and dead, I'm going to raise up from your descendants. Who else is being raised up? It's so obvious we miss it. Christ is going to be buried and laid in the grave. He's going to be raised up from you who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. Now watch verse 13. He shall build a house for my name. Who's that? That's Solomon. He will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him. He will be a son to me. Verse 15. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne will be established forever. forever. This is the Davidic covenant. The son of David, his lineage, those who will come from him, will be the, the great, 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 great grandfather of Messiah. And this is an eternal covenant. This is a promise God made with David, his servant, who he took from following sheep to be a ruler over his people Israel, and one's going to come from you, and your throne, the Davidic throne, is eternal. Nothing's going to stop it. So why is Bartimaeus calling him son of David when no one else in the Gospel of Mark is calling him son of David? He believed he was Messiah. Scribes and Pharisees would not like this title. Scribes and Pharisees would never use this title to talk about Jesus because that's tantamount to saying he is the Messiah. And here's blind Bartimaeus who's heard rumor about what this Jesus has done. No doubt he's heard of other healings. No doubt he's heard of other things that have happened. What's striking is that the blind beggar cries out and it pulls at the heart of the Messiah. Bartimaeus had heard enough to believe he was Jesus, the Messiah. The last point here I don't want you to miss. Bartimaeus asked. Bartimaeus went for the brass ring. Even though the people said, be quiet, be quiet, he asked. He was undeterred. Now, arguably, what's he got to lose? He's a blind beggar. But don't miss that he asks. Son of David, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Um, he knew what he wanted from Jesus. What do you ask of Jesus? What's your prayer list look like? What are the things you want him to do for you? And if you're a person that keeps a prayer list, which is great, analyze that and look at, step back and say, what am I asking God to do? To help with this, with this, with this? My job, my health, my promotion, my kids, my grandkids, my marriage. What are we asking for? We ask him a lot of things. Let's be real candid. How many does he answer the way we want him to answer? Does it bother you? Just keep praying. Do you think persistence and nagging God makes him answer prayer? If you do, you're woefully inadequate in your understanding of who he is. It just becomes, who's the best nagger? Who's the most persistent and shaming God? I keep asking, are we to ask without ceasing? Yeah. Are we to pray without ceasing? Yeah. But I'm going to ask you to recalibrate what that means. What are you asking of Jesus? Continue to hold that thought. So we've had the last trip, the last plea. Will you 
give me sight. And then verse 11, the last healing miracle. Excuse me, verse 49, the last miracle. Jesus stopped and said, call him here. So they called the blind man saying, take courage, stand up. He is calling for you. Throwing aside his cloak, he jumped up and came to Jesus. Answering him, Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? The blind man said to him, Rabboni. Literally, it's Rabboni to regain my sight. Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. Immediately, he regained his sight in following him on the road. Number one, he stopped. Don't miss the obvious. Jesus is not, oh, by the way, let's go over here. I think today let's go chill over in Samaria. Today let's go to the North Galilee. I like the lake up there. It's nice this time of year by the water. Uh, Jesus is always the intentional, deliberate Jesus. So when he hears this, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me, conscripted long before eternity, he only does that which the Father tells him to do. This was part of the plan. He stops. I see a little keystone cops going on here. If you've been in these ancient cities, you've traveled the world in first century type developing countries where the roadways are still walked primarily by foot. And if you're walking along and somebody stops, it's like everybody's you know, plowing into the back and kind of bumping into somebody. You do that in a crowd. If you're walking into a theater and somebody stops abruptly, it's not too uncommon to, oh, excuse me, I bumped into you. So we see a little keystone cop here. They're all kind of bumping into the back of Jesus. Going, whoa, whoa, he stopped. He stopped. Everybody. Oh, she stopped. He stopped. And it got quiet in my imagination. He stopped. Three verbs stand out in your text. I won't bore you with the grammar, but just notice. Call, take courage, stand up. Call, take courage, stand up. They're all the exact same voice intense. Call, take courage, stand up. Call him here. Welcome news. Over the persistent noise to shut up, call him here. Secondly, take courage. Now, some of your versions might have the phrase cheer up. That's not, that's not a wrong translation. It's a bad translation. Cheer up has nothing to do with this. It's take courage. But the reason our translators go to cheer up is because take courage kind of falls flat in the English ear today. What does take courage mean? Well, all it takes is a little looking how the words are used elsewhere. In the Gospel of Mark, we have two other occurrences. In Mark 6.50, when Jesus is walking on the stormy sea, and they think they're going to drown because the boat's filling with water. Jesus, excuse me, they, they see the ghost in chapter 650. They think it's a ghost. He says, take courage. We see the same exact thing repeated later when they're on the sea in chapter 14. Now, don't be too hard on the disciples. But two times the gospel record is they're about to drown at sea and Jesus saves them. Do you think the first time they would get it? Do you think the first feeding of the 5,000 they would get it? No, because they're just like you and me. The second time in Mark 14, 27, they're battered by waves and wind, and Jesus walks on the water and says, take courage. Don't be afraid. It is I. Taking courage means to be firm and resolute in the face of fear. To be firm and resolute in the face of fear. That's what it means to take courage. He's calling to you, take courage, the crowd says to him. Be firm and resolute in the face of fear. And then thirdly, stand up. Do something about your situation. Don't miss the obvious. Get up. Innumerable conversations I have with people who deal with chronic pain. 
Um, I spend a lot of time, I would say 10% of my time has to do with people that are in chronic pain or in chemotherapy or uh, facing some new diagnosis. I have friends all around the country, people randomly who email me, I've heard you've had back surgeries, and I, I tell them I'm, I'm the kind of doctor that can't help. Don't take my advice, I'm not a medical person, but I can tell you some things. And I listen to their story and I ask lots of questions and see if they're doing, you know, what they got to do. And the thing I always tell everybody is, just do the next thing. And if you've not been chronically ill, you don't understand the weight of that. Because for some of us, just calling the doctor's office to make an appointment is an overwhelming albatross. Because if you've tried to make an appointment lately, you know, no disrespect to the medical community and our audience, but it's hard to get in to see somebody. Even with people I know, I might call today and they might say, well, his next clinic visit is three months from today. I can't wait three months to see him or her. And so it becomes overwhelming when you have a problem. How am I going to get to see the doctor? And I tell people, just do the next thing. Have you had trouble with insurance? Oh, my word. Dealing with the IRS is a cakewalk compared to dealing with your health insurance. Try to call the health insurance. You'll think IRS is a, a joyful experience. Because the health insurance industry is so upside down. It's not their fault. It's just a mess right now. And so for me to deal with health insurance, wait a minute, I've hit my deductible. Why do I got to pay this bill? I should only have to pay a few bucks. I got to pay this big bill. Good luck calling somebody and getting them on the phone. And asking, it's all press two if you have this, press three. I didn't understand your response when you, ah, you want to shoot the telephone, right? Just do the next thing. When you're so sick and nauseous from chemo, you can't get out of bed, you know what you got to do? The next thing. You got to get out of bed. You got to make it to the shower. You got to shave or put a little makeup on. You got to get dressed. You got to eat something. You got to wash a load of clothes. 20 plus years ago, a dear friend of Cindy's and mine passed away of leukemia, leaving his wife with five children all still at home. Finances weren't great. Health insurance wasn't great. House wasn't great. It was a mess. And after the funeral, a few weeks later, I called her to see how she's doing. And she just, she's overwhelmed with life, understandably. Who would not be a single parent with five kids and the breadwinner's gone? She was a stay-at-home mom. And I said, you know, I'm going to tell you one thing. I'm not trying to be trite, but just do the next thing. Wash a load of clothes. Make some lunches. Maybe not every day. Make, today, make some lunches. Just, just clean up your kitchen. Because he was in the middle of redoing the home. And on and on. And if I was to see her today and her kids are grown and gone, she would say, Michael, I still remember. And I do it almost every day. Just do the next thing. And why that's so powerful is because that's my story. Every morning I got to do the next. I got to get out of bed. I got to drag myself to the shower. It takes about an hour before everything starts getting lined up <laughs> and quiet. And I just got to do the next thing. Do the next thing. Do the next thing. Just like you. It's so simple. It's not even all that Christian. It's just common sense. But look what Jesus is telling him. Call him here. The group says, take courage. Stand up. If Jesus told you to come over here, would you come over here? Would you do the next thing? 
too often we're immobilized by fear and we're unwilling to just take, to stand in the face of fear, take courage, and do the next thing. You know, maybe that's all you needed to hear today. In your job, in your health struggles, in whatever you're facing, in your marriage, in your parenting issues, you just need to take courage, stand firm in the face of fear, and do the next thing. You cannot solve it all. If I think about all of it, I get immobilized and I'm back in bed not wanting to get out of bed. I just can't make the phone calls. I can't start dealing with my finances. I can't start addressing my parenting. I can't start addressing my marriage because it's just too big. It's too big for all of us. But you can stand up. You can take courage. And you can do the next thing. Maybe that's all you needed today. Well, Bartimaeus probably hadn't moved real quickly in his life. I'm going to suggest he never moved more quickly than this incident. The text tells us two things. He threw aside his cloak, and then he jumped up. Uh, the cloak is more than just his outer garment. It was probably, think of it if you're a backpacker or a climber or whatever, that's your one article you don't give up. That was his outer cloak, and more than likely the way he collected his, his uh, begging contributions. So he, we might say he pitched aside that which he depended upon. Secondly, he jumps up. Only time it occurs in the New Testament. He sprang up. This is the brass ring. He called me. I can go talk to him. And Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? All the synoptics have the exact question word for word. What do you want me to do for you? Bartimaeus, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. That's the question he's asking. Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? James and John said, will you make us important in position and power? And then others become indignant. Jesus, what do you want me to do for you? Hebert paraphrases, Jesus wanted the man to express his faith, asking him to make a specific request. A group of 44 of us just returned from Israel a couple weeks ago, and we took them to the pool of Bethesda, Bethesda, the five porticos. It's recorded in John chapter 5, and that story is where the, the uh, disabled man is laying 38 years by the pool of Bethesda. And there's a lore, it's not a true story, there's a lore that an angel would come down and stir up the water called paroxysmos, and whoever gets in the water first gets healed. And Jesus, seeing this disabled man, the text goes out of the way, John says, 38 years disabled, and he asks him a question. Do you want to get well? Pretty simple question. And the guy says, I've been laying here 38 years. My animal comes down and the stir the water. No one's here. They only get the first. In the Greek, it says, wah, 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 wah. This is in the Greek New Testament. If Jesus says, do you want to get well, what's the answer? Yes. Yes. How often do we wah, 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 wah? What are you asking Jesus? Raboni, I want to give her a game my sight. It's a very endearing personal term. My master, my Lord. Matthew says he touched him. Mark gives us no indication. He just simply says your faith has made you well. Some of your Bibles say healed. The word made you well, three words in English, healed, one in English, from the word sozo in Greek, which means to save. It's a double entendre. It can mean a couple of things. You can be saved from drowning in a physical sense. You can be saved spiritually from spiritual death. 
And the word sometimes is meant to play on both of those things. Here is a perfect example. Your faith has saved you. Was he made well of his blindness? Yes, but he's spiritually able to see now. We're all spiritually blind. We're all spiritually deaf. We're all spiritual lepers. We're all spiritually lame. We're all spiritually going to hell. And when he gives us eyes to see, ears to hear, legs to walk, the picture is not simply the miracle of the physical healing. It's the spiritual metaphor. You're blind, you're, you're, blind, you're lame, you're disabled, and I'm going to heal you of that spiritually. Your faith has made you well. Mark ends it immediately. He regained his sight. William Barclay writes, Bartimaeus was a man of gratitude. Having received sight, he followed Jesus. He did not selfishly go on his own way when his knee was met. He began with a need, and then it went to gratitude. It then followed with loyalty. A good summary of the stages of discipleship. And this is the last healing miracle in the Gospel of Mark. Two questions for your so what. Clarify what you're asking of Jesus. Clarify what you are asking of Jesus. I don't think all that long list or that sort of mushy list, maybe you don't have a list, but it's kind of in your head, the same things you pray for over and over again. I don't think it's bad, but I do think it could use some clarifying and maybe some wire brushing and scrubbing. And then think about this one. This one will, I hope, cause you some pause. Listen to what Jesus is asking you. We spend a lot of time asking for things we don't get and somewhat disconcerting or frustrated in our faith because he doesn't answer us when we pray. What's the differential what James and John asked, what the blind man asked? I want power and position. Will you have mercy on me? You see, the humble asks for mercy. The humble asks for forgiveness. The humble asks... Can I be a better husband or father? The humble asks, let me be a better wife or mother. The humble asks, can I love my husband even when he's unlovable? Can I love my wife even when she's being unlovable? The humble asks, I want to serve you well no matter what I make. The humble says, it's not about me. It's about you. The humble says, I don't know what to do with my kids. I need your help. The books ain't working. The humble says as a teenager, I shouldn't treat my parents that way. I shouldn't hate my parents during my teen years. The arrogant and the proud and the selfish, the John and James say, my, my parents stink. I want out of here. I want on my own. I deserve this. I deserve that. I, 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 I. Make me. Give me position and power in life. You want to be first? He didn't say be last. He said be a slave of all. You know what's important? Die to yourself. You want to serve the wise? Even the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to give his life a ransom. He came to die in your place, in my place, on my behalf. Clarify what you're Maybe you can compress your prayer list down to four things instead of this mushy, long thing that you kind of feel guilty. You don't pray for all the things you're going to say you pray for. And when people ask you to pray for something, I have, I have a secret here. Either don't say anything, because you're lying if you say, I'll pray for you, unless you're really good at that. Or just stop right then and say, let's pray right now. That's really important. Can I pray for you right now? Because I don't want to forget. And I don't want to lie and say, sure, I'll pray for you. 
and then ask in humility, not in arrogance. Clarify what you ask of Jesus and listen to what he's asking you. And if those two align, who knows? How well is the other working for you? Maybe this is a good clarification. Clarify what you're asking and listen to what he's asking you. And one of the ways you can do that is to see what he asks people as you read. What do you want me to do for you? Boy, that's a brass ring, baby. Make me, make me important. You don't know what you're asking. I want to regain my sight. Have mercy on me. Interesting revelation of his heart, is it not? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's true. We thank you that you do hear us as we, we all muddle through the Christian life sometimes. Help us to, to clarify what we're asking of you to refine our prayer language. We're speaking to the God of the universe, for goodness sakes. Why would we repeat the same drill over and over and over again, thinking one day you're going to give in? And help us to clearly listen to what you're asking of us, to be faithful, to be humble, to love our wives as Christ of the church to be the kind of man or woman you want us to be, the kind of student you want us to be, to be the outlier in faith when others don't follow. And give us the courage, to take courage, and to do the next thing. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.